Hello and welcome to the Boss Podcast, where every week we dive into reels of talks from the past decades of boss comps and revisit some ever-relevant topics. I am Kirk Bailey and this is episode 72 with Radhika Dutt. The Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Radhika Dutt is an entrepreneur and product leader who has participated in four acquisitions as a result of the products she built and advises organisations from high-tech startups to government agencies on building radical products, ones that create a fundamental change instead of optimising the status quo. She co-founded Radical Product Thinking as a movement of leaders creating vision-driven change. In this talk from BossConf Online, Radhika talks about where iteration goes wrong. Methodologies such as Lean and Agile have democratised innovation by teaching us to harness the power of iteration to innovate faster. But our ability to set a clear destination hasn't kept up with the pace. When we iterate without a clear vision or strategy, our products become bloated, fragmented and driven by irrelevant metrics. They can catch product diseases that are often fatal to true innovation. There are some great discussion points and tools covered in this talk that you can use in your team too. Happy listening. So I'm looking forward to today's talk because uh, I love the same level of engagement and you know the discussion um, and I want to hear your ideas. So this is going to be an interactive session where you'll see some breakouts happening like halfway through and one towards the end. Um, what we're going to talk about is um, what's wrong with how we build products today uh, and I want to talk about you know a, a different way of thinking about how we can build products that addresses kind of how the market is shifting and what it's going to mean for us in terms of how we need to perhaps build products differently. So let's start with the question of right how do we build products today uh, and the model today that we've learned right is we have to iterate quickly move fast, break things, fail fast, learn fast. And we've learned that if we do all of these three things, right, just right, then we stand to make lots of money. So the mantra of product management and product development has been, we build products through iteration. And it's gotten to a point where I was at a meeting with an executive and the product team said to him, you know, we just don't have the right designer. And his response was, you know, I understand we don't have the right designer on the team, but that just means we'll need a few more iterations, but eventually we'll get there. Right? His message was basically, if we iterate enough, we'll get there. That's where I think we're really over relying on iteration. How did we get here? Right? Because this is, this is a pretty long way off from, I think, where we originally started with the idea of Lean Startup. And what I realized is, you know, this, this idea of iterating and iterating as the way of building products really developed over the last decade 
Uh, and in this last decade, we've had some pretty unusual economic times. It's been the longest um, economic boom, uh, the longest streak of an economic boom that we've ever had in history, right? And so what has happened is we've had such an abundance of credit, both through corporate debt and this abundance of credit because of VC money, et cetera, that because of that, um, the idea of Lean Startup, which uh, you know was published in uh, 2011, the way it evolved was that it became, well, we have so much money, let's try things and see what works. We were able to throw money at the problem, right? And so that's kind of how this idea evolved that, you know, we can just iterate and try things. And I want to take a moment and call bullshit on that. Uh, and the reason for that, right, is because for every company, that has been able to try one idea after another uh, and find success by trying one idea after another. So for every Slack and for every Twitter, there's just a graveyard of companies that have failed along the way just trying one idea after another. And keeping in, in line with this bull theme, right? In a bull market, uh, we're able to throw money at the problem. The reality is that in a bear market though, we really have to figure out how do we iterate less and achieve more. And we know that there is, you know, a credit crunch coming up. Really, it's a matter of when. Um, and so how do we prepare ourselves for this credit crunch that is coming? How can we uh, learn to build products differently so that we don't have to iterate as much? And so that's what I really want to focus on today. So to answer that question, right, I think first we have to look at what goes wrong. So when we do build products, um, just using iteration alone or over relying on iterations, um, what I found is that there's the same pattern of product diseases that keep coming up. Uh, and my own background is that, you know, I've built products in so many different industry verticals. Um, it's ranged from broadcast, uh, media and entertainment, advertising, telecom, uh, finance, and even wine. And across these different industries and sizes of companies, it's the same set of product diseases. So what I want to do is I'll share some of these diseases and let's do a checkup where you can share uh, if you've seen some of these diseases as well. Um, and so for this section, right, if you have experienced this disease, please do share this in chat. I think it's always wonderful to see solidarity and other people suffering from the same, right? So uh, please do share that in chat. And the example I'm going to use for um, these product diseases is the Berlin-Brandenburg Airport. Uh, anyone familiar with uh, BER? Excellent. I'm not seeing very many hands go up right now. Um, so that's good. And actually, you've not heard about BER because it turns out this is the ghost airport. It's the ghost airport because uh, it was supposed to open in 2011. Uh, and nine years later, it is now finally set to open on October 31st uh, this year. And, you know, for a lot of the Berliners, uh, they now look at BER as this dark humor and they keep looking at it going with glee saying, ha, ah, what happened now with BER, right? So uh, 
I interviewed Martin Delius, uh, who was the chairman of the investigative committee, who looked into what happened at BR. How did you know nine years of delays come about? And he helped me identify some of these product diseases. And basically, his reaction was this face palm saying, you know, yes, we encountered all of these diseases. So the first one that he talked about was hero syndrome. Um, hero syndrome strikes when we focus on the scale of our impact, where it's all about being big. Right? For BER, their vision was just filled with all these superlatives. It was all about being the biggest, the most modern. It was about putting Berlin on the map. Right? If you think about the startup world, uh, for a startup, it, this is very often be about being that next billion dollar company. Um, I'll tell you my own experience with Hero Syndrome. This was at my startup, uh, my first startup um, when, I was just, when I just graduated from school. Um, our tagline, our tagline itself tells you about the hero syndrome we'd kind of, we encountered. Our tagline was enlightened wireless. So we really wanted to change the world of wireless, but you ask me, what exactly were we doing? That part was a lot less clear, right? So in the case of BER, uh, this vision, everyone was aligned at this very high level to be the biggest, mo most modern, et cetera. Devil's in the details, which led to pivotitis. Um, what happened was after construction started, they realized that they needed to double capacity. Also after construction started, they realized that, huh, we need to add a floor for retail. What happened was the architect, it turned out, hated shopping. So in this international airport, there were actually no duty-free stores. <laughs> and so to which the developers said, that really doesn't work. And so they added in a floor for retail. So pivotitis started to cost them money, right? All these changes as you start to, um, as you start to make changes after things are getting going. Um, by the way, in companies, you often see pivotitis to the point where from one uh, sprint to the next, you see, uh, you see pivots happening, right? But in the case of um, BER, because they encountered pivotitis, they constantly needed more funding. And so that led to obsessive sales disorder. Uh, obsessive sales disorder is when you keep making short-term decisions, right? In this case, they had to sell politicians um, on giving them more funding. So they had to keep offering up new shiny objects uh, in exchange for getting funding. And so over time, they continue to drift further and further away from the vision. Um, in a company, you may have encountered obsessive sales disorder when, for example, uh, sometimes you know, your salesperson comes to you and I've definitely fallen trapped to this. I've added to obsessive sales disorder in a past company. Um, so your salesperson comes to you and says, you know, we can win this big marquee customer. All we have to do is just add this one custom feature and it looks mostly harmless. And so we say yes. Um, and basically, we end up spending the rest of uh, our year just making good on all these contracts, right? Come on, some of you must have encountered uh, obsessive sales disorder. Um, it's all we know. <laughs> thank you for sharing. And then you have locked-in syndrome because of all of these previous diseases, right? Because uh, BER was supposed to cost... 2.3 billion, but with all of these changes, 
it started costing more and more. And at some point they'd spent so much public money uh, that it was very clear that the best course of action would be to just scrap the whole thing and just start over. But at that point, they were just locked in because how can you now throw away all that money and you know you really just have to deliver on what you've uh, committed to, right? And so they were in locked in syndrome. And so now, 10, over 10 billion euros later, um, it's finally set to open in October and we're all keeping our fingers crossed, right? So this is the story of a few product diseases and uh, please do share in chat if you've seen them. Um, but the thing is that these are common diseases that can be avoided uh, and they happen because when we don't have a clear vision and strategy that leads to our execution, whenever there's a break in the chain, somewhere between vision and execution, that's where these product diseases creep in. So the question then is, right, and we were actually talking about this in one of our breakout rooms, Emily Jarvis was mentioning, well, you know, it just feels like lean and agile, they're not enough. And that's exactly right, right? So why can't lean and agile just be enough to get us out of trouble? And the answer to that is uh, because they are great for feedback-driven execution. So they help us get to where we want to go fast. So they give us speed, but they just don't tell us where we need to be going. And when we look at speed, right, speed can look like this. Um, we can all be moving fast, but in different directions. And if we think about BER, uh, in that case, the architect and the developer, they were all moving fast, but just not all together, right? And so what we need is more than speed. We need speed plus something. Um, and that's where radical product comes, uh, thinking comes in. So radical product thinking is a methodology for building successful products uh, that help us create the change that we envision in the world. Um, and it uses the terminology of product because it helps us bring our teams and align our teams. Uh, it gives us a set of tools uh, that helps us engineer that change. And when I talk about engineering change, right, what I mean is we still want to use iteration but we want to use iteration together uh, with vision, strategy, et cetera. So what I mean by engineering change is starting with a really clear vision and then translating it into a strategy and then into a set of, uh, into a rubric for how do we prioritize things and then into iterative execution and measurement. And to be able to deliver on all of this, um, the right culture so that we're able to build these successful products. And, this, and the idea with radical product thinking was that, you know, so many of these elements had been said before, but what we found was that it was just really hard to do these things step by step. And where product diseases creep in is whenever there's a break from one step to the next. So our goal was to create tools for each of these steps so that it makes it really easy for you to communicate your rationale uh, within your team and within your organization so that you can bring people on the journey. So I wanna give you a little taste of what this means because as I mentioned, you know, there, there are people who have talked about writing a good vision, but what does that mean exactly? And so for that, we're gonna do a quick exercise. So the exercise, right, is the following and we're gonna use the Zoom chat for this. So here is a vision statement, right? 
This vision statement represents a lot of what we've heard about what is a good vision. It's short, it's big and aspirational. It sounds like a BHAG or a big, hairy, audacious goal. So the vision reads, right, contributing to human progress by empowering people to express themselves. Now, this vision is the real vision statement of a big public company. So in chat, I want you to, if you, if you know the answer to whose vision this is, don't share that. I want you to share ideas for a company or a product that could be described by this vision and get creative for me. Uh, because this is not about the right answer, but I really want you to get creative in terms of what fits this vision. Uh, and you can go ahead right now if you have ideas, go for it. One idea I'll throw out if you're still thinking is, you know, a public um, um, art company, it was a nonprofit, is helping people uh, express themselves. Wow, you guys are creative. I'm gonna stop with my examples, I love yours. Uh, clothing company, absolutely, it's helping people um, express themselves. Uh, oh, Rick, I hadn't thought of that one. Vic as well. <laughs> RuPaul Drag Race, awesome. This is really creative. Business of software too. Mark, this was your vision, wasn't this? <laughs> um, Pfizer, interesting. So, wow, Vogue as well, Benetton, that's true. Um, okay, this is a lot more creative even than the, the, the ideas that I'd come up with, right? And this is awesome. What we have in this Twitter store, sorry, in the Zoom chat storm, um, is basically an example of what happens in a company. You have so many different ideas that people are throwing at you in terms of um, what you should be building, right? Um, which direction your company could go. And when you have a vision, your vision should be a good filter so that I can hold up any of these ideas against this filter and say, should we do this or not? And you know, there, the answer sometimes should be, no, this is not a good idea against this vision, right? Um, in this case, this vision is so broad that all the way from um, a social media company to you know, this music arts and dance teaching company, everything is a yes. Now I'm gonna reveal whose vision this is. Uh, anyone know actually this answer? Okay, so it's Snapchat. Oh yes, Julia, you got it, yes. Uh, but yes, I guess my sentiment here is, you feel like, huh, interesting, right? That, that kind of tells you something. Um, thank you, Ben. Cool. So the first step in creating a good vision, right, is that we have to unlearn a lot of the things that we've learned about what a good vision is. Your vision doesn't have to be heroic. Uh, it doesn't have to be truly aspirational and big. It really has to be a genuine problem that inspires you. And your vision should be able to articulate the answers to these four questions. Um, so the first is, whose world are you trying to change? Um, and it has to be a specific group. It can't just be everyone's, right? It's an, a, an, an identifiable group of people. Uh, the second question is, what does their world look like today? So what is their problem? Um, the third is, why does that problem need addressing? Uh, why does that world need changing? Because the reality is, maybe it actually doesn't need changing. And then the last question is, how are you going to change it uh, for them?
Um, oh, Igor says, so was Snapchat an example for, of a good or a bad vision? It was not a good vision. And the reason is because it does not act like a good filter. It doesn't say no to any of those ideas. Everything seems like it's a good vision. And so once you have a vision that's a lot more detailed, where you're actually answering the who, what, why, and the how, now that starts to act like a filter because then you run it against, run many of these ideas against that filter. Now the answer to those, uh, many of those ideas might be a no, let's not do that, right? So what I found was um, even when you know that you have to answer the who, what, why, and how, um, it was really hard to answer those questions when you start with a blank sheet of paper. And so we crafted this Mad Lib statement where uh, this way it achieves two things. One is that you're not stuck in wordsmithing, right? Like how many of us have been stuck in four hour long visioning sessions where you're talking about, should we use the word reshaping or is that reinventing that we should use, right? So the idea is that you don't want to get stuck on the words. You really want to talk about the concepts, the deeper ideas behind it. The second reason is that you really don't want to um, be completely tied down to this vision. You know, we should be able to edit this over time. Maybe six months down the line, you'll want to look back at this and say, huh, is this still true? And so let me read out this vision as I would have written this for my startup that I had in 2011 and I sold it in 2014. So that vision would read, today when amateur wine drinkers want to find wines they like, they have to uh, buy wines that uh, come in attractive looking bottles uh, or that are on sale. Uh, this is unacceptable because it leads to lots of misses we envision a world where finding wines you like is as easy as renting movies on Netflix. Uh, we're bringing about this world through a recommendations algorithm that matches wines to your taste and an operational setup that delivers these wines to your door. Now, the thing is, you know, I said nothing about my startup before, whereas at the end of this, hopefully it gives you a sense of exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it. You know, usually when I share this uh, vision statement, right, the first question that um, I, I get is, you know, this sounds less like a vision and more like an essay. So uh, why, why does it have to be so long, right? Um, and the answer to that, and I'm so glad that this is business of software because now I can get nerdy on you. Think of this as source code for your vision. So your team needs the source code to actually build your product. Um, if you think about your marketing team, your marketing team can take the source code. They will not publish the source code on the website, right? They'll create a clean build and that's the clean build that the website will hear. So you might have a brand tagline, you know, a pithy short statement that you'll publish to the world. But this vision, the source code to your vision is what you'll put up on your conference room wall so that when you're all having a heated debate that you can refer to this and say, are we being true to this vision? Right. So I'm going to pause here. Um, and what I want to do is 
I want us to get into breakout groups uh, and I want us to think about um, two questions. So the questions are, do you think your current vision is detailed enough? Um, and is it causing product diseases? Because what I've often found is many product diseases, and not all, uh, many product diseases often originate from a vision that's a little too broad. So talk about you know, your current vision in your breakout chat uh, and whether it's not detailed enough. And the second is, could you engage your team in a visioning exercise to create more alignment? Uh, and if someone in your team has done something like that, um, you know, how did that go? Um, and could you use an exercise like this? How would you go about it? Um, so Patty, could we get that started, please? Welcome back, everyone. Great. Thank you all. So hopefully you had some interesting discussions uh, in your breakouts. Um, and so maybe let's, now that we're all back together, let's do some sharing. Maybe a couple of teams can share, you know, what you talked about. Um, Patty, do you want to just pick a couple yeah, of Yeah, sure. I'm going to pick on a couple of, of people. Um, Ivan Jenkins, great to hear what you were talking about in your breakout. Hey, Patty. Um, yeah, so basically, uh, uh, just acknowledgement um, that it's not detailed enough. And uh, could we engage the team? So, so one of the suggestions was it's actually because we're all doing the work from home thing, and it's all remote. Um, somehow, you know, sometimes the team is a little bit disconnected, and it might be a good exercise as a way to bring back different team members, you know, getting the, the, the members that maybe aren't talking to each other on a day-to-day -day basis, bringing them back in and, and doing this exercise. So, um, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of my take on what we chatted about. Yeah, such an, uh, yeah, such an important thing to do, especially during this time, right, where people are remote and uh, feel disconnected. Um, and it's, it's a really good way. You know, we did this recently, and it felt like such a bonding experience for the team. Also, I think um, as, as sort of management, you, you know, you, you have this vision and, and it's sort of there, but, but be, when you go to the office, you can sort of reinforce it and, 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 you know, there's a sort of more subtle way of communicating it. And now with everyone with work from home, it's, it's potentially, well, definitely in our business, this would be a great exercise to sort of re, reaffirm what the vision is and bring everyone sort of back in line and uh, get them talking again. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Great. I'm going to pick on someone else. Um, Josh McElprang. It'd be great to hear what your um, group were talking about. Sure. Um, so we ended up talking about um, at different size scale, how big the company is versus how small the company is, where that vision um, applies and how it can change based on the size and what disruption that can bring um, to the company as a whole. Um, that's kind of what I took away from our breakout. Uh, interesting. And what did you guys conclude? Well, we decided that, you know, when you're, you're smaller, it's easier to become aligned um, because you're having those more direct conversations. But as you scale up and, you know, add more people to the mix, there be, needs to be a much more clear vision statement to get behind. Right, exactly. And I think part of the goal of this exercise, right, is when uh, the way I run it, I often, um, I'll always have, I'll usually write this out on a whiteboard and then ask people to uh, write their answers to each one on a post-it and each person goes and puts it up um, on the whiteboard. 
Uh, and so the idea is that this way you get each person to talk about how they would fill it in. And it really helps you also understand where there are misalignments. Uh, and so your point, you know, in bigger companies, it becomes especially more important to understand those misalignments. And part of it is it helps create this thing that, you know, Alison Coward talks about this, uh, create this facilitative culture uh, where I love that idea where, you know, it, get, it forces people to kind of share their ideas uh, and your, your co creating that vision. Absolutely. Um, and I think there's something that we just came in the chat that there's the temptation to broaden that vision statement, right? You have more people, you want to make it broad so everyone can align, and then you end up in, you know, all these illnesses that you were describing previously. Exactly. Um, cool. Maybe one more, and then we'll keep going with the rest. Great. Um, uh, Marina Fedner, be great to hear from you about your group. Um, I think Josh mentioned something similar. Hi, everyone. I'm Marina. I work for Duo Security, which was, uh, was a uh, security startup. It got acquired by Cisco uh, almost two years ago at this point. And I think I said something similar to what some of you mentioned. When it was a startup and it was small, the vision was very crisp and clear. And I think it really followed um, your formula quite well. And I think that helped Duo be successful because at every point, all the teams were aligned and they were able to understand. So early on, it was something like, you know, usually uh, security is very difficult and expensive and it, re and it requires your company to invest, you know, to have a, a special IT manager to invest a lot of money. However, we're gonna democratize security by making it uh, inexpensive and effective and very easy to use. And so we had this two-factor product that really fit all of those things. And we were able to say no to features very well because they didn't fit with making it uh, cheap and easy and effective. So now we got acquired and now our product portfolio has grown. And you know we have a lot of additional products which are very valuable, but they make it complicated. And now you know our parent company Cisco also wants to integrate us with all of their portfolio of products. And so now the vision is, um, it has, it's, it's a, to your point, the temptation is to grow it and to say, you know, we want security everywhere and for everyone, but that doesn't help us make those decisions day to day. It's too broad. So I know the challenge. I don't know where to go from there. So here's what's interesting about, uh, you know, even, even in how you described your vision at the beginning versus right now, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when you described your vision at the beginning, what you described was you basically gave a whole essay which sounded exactly kind of uh, along the lines of that long statement and, and yeah. what you in, in how you describe it you just you prove the point that you know that short wording doesn't matter like how you worded it doesn't really matter but you were really passionate and you felt it right uh, it was your it was a driving purpose in a why yeah, I mean, it's, I guess that's a good point. I may not be able to right now without thinking it through, be able to share Duo's initial vision with all of you, but I can, I can guarantee you that it was very short and they were able to convey it um, very quickly to themselves and to others. Right, but I mean, and, and that wasn't even that important because like you were able to say your vision in your own words and that was very right. interesting. Whereas for now that you're part of Cisco, um, you know, I noticed that you didn't say what the vision now is. Like, it was just interesting in terms of dynamic mm -hmm. that you talked about the old vision. You didn't talk about the new vision. I, to be honest, I'm not sure that I understand Cisco's vision as a whole or even my department's vision, which is now contains Duo and various other products. 
Right, exactly. And I love this because I actually use this as a test uh, with teams to say, you know, do we have a detailed enough vision? Whenever we have a detailed enough vision, they're able to say what the vision is in their own words. When the vision is not detailed enough, they often say to me, wait, wait, I know the vision. It's there somewhere. Let me go look it up and I'll tell you what the vision is. Whenever I hear yeah. that, I have to go look it up. You know, okay, it's not detailed <laughs> yeah. enough. Like that's, that's a test yeah. you can use. Awesome. Thank you. This is really interesting, right? Um, so now that we've talked about, you know, um, what a good vision is, what I want to talk about then is, okay, what do you do with a good vision? Um, and how do you use that uh, for the next step, which is, you know, where to from there? How do you actually use that to be able to iterate less and achieve more? Um, and the example that I want to use is the example of Singapore. You might be thinking, wait a minute, but how do you call Singapore a product, right? It's a whole country. Uh, and that's part of my point. Um, this idea of radical product thinking, you can really uh, apply this to any kind of a product. Anything that's your mechanism to create change. Your mechanism to create change is basically your product. Um, and so in the case of Singapore, right, uh, they I moved here two years ago, and I've been really fascinated about how the country is just engineered so systematically, it feels like a product. Um, and so I wanted to share a little bit about the origin and the history that I've learned and why this feels like a product. Um, and, and by the way, what's interesting is, right, Singapore as a country, like if you think about history and just how many um, countries that, you know, after colonialism, have not done well, um, you know, you realize that um, after colonialism, you kind of have this very, it's very delicate. You don't have many chances to iterate. You kind of have to get it right uh, in your first step. Um, and so, you know, you really don't have the ability to keep iterating and, and just figuring it out along the way. You kind of really have to engineer it systematically. And so that's why I thought it was such an appropriate example for a product where you have to iterate less and achieve more. And so Singapore's history, by the way, in the 1950s, uh, Singapore was uh, this really poor, struggling island. Uh, the majority didn't have running water or sanitation. This here is an iconic picture of Singapore of a worker carrying night soil. Uh, and I leave it to your imagination in terms of what that means. Um, but the way Singapore started was that they had started after a failed merger with Malaysia. And, uh, you know, in 1965 when, was when Singapore became an independent country. And when they became independent, right, nobody really thought that Singapore could survive as a country. In fact, the first prime minister, Lee Kuan Yew, um, he got emotional in that first press conference. And he said in that conference, you know, all my life, um, I thought Singapore's place in the world belonged with Malaysia. But he talked about a vision in that press conference, right? Um, and so the, the change that he wanted to bring to the, to the world, it was really intended for Singaporeans. So the change he wanted to bring for them was to give them a better life. And his vehicle or the product for doing that uh, was Singapore's country. And it was by creating this first world oasis in a third world region. That's how he described it. Um, so he talked about basically creating a platform to explore the region. And, you know, it's really fascinating that it, he uses all these product terms even, right? So 
vision, you know, that was clearly a very detailed vision in terms of what he wanted to produce, right? Um, but that was the first step. So the next step was really, how do you engineer that change systematically? And that's where your product strategy comes in. Um, product strategy is basically when we ask four questions. Um, and, and RDCL is a simple mnemonic. But the questions are, you know, first, in terms of um, the R stands for what's the real pain point. So in this case for Singapore, the question was, what do businesses need in an oasis, right? The D is for design, meaning what's our solution to that pain that uh, our customer experiences. Um, the capability is basically, how do we power that solution? Um, what do we need to be able to deliver on the promise of that solution? And the last one, logistics, is basically how do we actually deliver that to customers? So if we were to um, write that out, and I'll just go over this one uh, pain point as an example. Um, for Singapore, you know, one of the big pain points for businesses coming to this oasis would be that it needs to be easy to communicate. And for it to be easy to communicate, you know, English needed to be the official language. That was the design uh, that was needed, the solution, right? But let's think about, you know, just how many countries entered civil war because, you know, one language was picked. Um, in Singapore, there was so much diversity, so many different languages being spoken. There were many different dialects of Chinese. There was Malay, Tamil, um, and also some English, right? But to be able to make English the official language, they basically had to engineer social change. Um, there was a lot of language education. They had to get buy-in from a whole population on why is English the uh, business language. Um, and even now, you know, there's a lot of focus on teaching mother tongues and English happens to be one of the languages. Um, and then there was logistics. So for example, you know, thinking about how are we gonna fund all of this? Um, how do we build all the infrastructure? Uh, how do we enforce rules? What's interesting, right, is uh, we often think of Singapore as the place where it's all about enforcing these rules and fines. Um, but even all this enforcement, that's very hard to do if people are not bought in. So they really had this education campaign to get people to buy into this vision uh, and know why were they creating these rules. Even, these, uh, even the rule of keeping Singapore clean, it was because they wanted people in this oasis, these expats, to feel like, oh, this is a first world country. And so everything had to be free of litter. And so they had to get people to buy into this vision and only then could they enforce. Um, and so even today, you know, in terms of enforcement, if you walk down the street and you do something bad, you'll see a local auntie who's like wagging her finger at you and telling you, you know, don't do that. Um, and so that's kind of how it works because people are bought in. And so you have a clear product strategy. The next step is prioritization. And Singapore had to do the same thing. They had a vision, but prioritization means you have to think about how do you survive in, in how do you survive in the short term? How do you survive long enough to be able to achieve your vision, right? Um, and so that's where, when we're prioritizing, we're really trading off the long term against the short term. We're trading off the vision as your y-axis against survival. So for Singapore, survival meant geopolitical survival. 
for you, perhaps survival means, you know, financial survival for the company. So revenues make it easier, uh, you know, lack of revenues make it harder to survive. Um, or perhaps, you know, if you're in a really big company, uh, financial survival is not the big deal. Maybe it's about stakeholders. Your stakeholder could kill your product. And so you're either pleasing your stakeholder and that's helping you survive, or you're not pleasing your stakeholder and that's not helping you survive, right? And so the easy decisions are, of course, ones that help you both with your vision and survive. Um, but, you know, we also have to think about investing in the vision, because if we always think about survival, those are short term decisions. And so if you're refactoring code for three months, that's investing in the vision, right? Uh, because you're not seeing short term benefits from it, but it's helping you achieve your vision. If you're building vision debt, that's where you remember my example of obsessive sales disorder. That's what you're doing. You're building vision debt and it takes you away from your vision, but it's helping you survive. You know, vision debt is like technical debt where um, you know that it's not, you're going to, you'll pay for it in the long run, but it's helping you short term, right? And so none of these quadrants are bad, but you decide kind of how you move through these, you know, what do you do on these different quadrants? And so in Singapore's case, they declared independence, right? That was investing in the vision, but declaring independence by itself wasn't, um, you know, going to help them survive. So they needed to do a couple of other things in the other quadrants. They had to build alliances. They had to create an army so that another country didn't gobble them up. Um, they had to create access to drinking water because they relied on Malaysia for 70% of their water supply. So you uh, prioritize things by picking things from different quadrants. And so the summary of the Singapore example, right, is that your product is your improvable mechanism to be able to bring about the change that you envision. Um, and really it means anything can be a product, uh, but the idea is that we really systematically build our product by starting with a vision and then translating it all the way down to execution. And so the question then is, right, how do we plug this into what we're doing? Because today maybe we're using lean and agile. How do we use this? Um, and so think about lean and agile as giving you speed. And when you add radical product thinking to it, right, it gives you direction. And so now together that gives you velocity. And so if I were to represent that graphically, you know, vision and strategies where you can use radical product thinking and lean and agile is where you are today in terms of, you know, you're basically uh, doing this iterative loop between strategy and vision. And so um, when you use radical product thinking plus lean and agile, it kind of brings all of that together. And so radical product thinking is not about adding more process. It's really a way of thinking about it so that you're able to apply vision and strategy and translate it all the way into execution. And so with that, right, um, I want to uh, break us out into another group. Um, sorry, yeah, in another group so that we can talk about two things. One is, you know, there are so many products that you're probably working on, right? So one is your product at work, and maybe that's the one you choose to focus on talking about, but you could think about other products you're working on. Um, for me, that one other example might be, I'm working on my book. Uh, and I think about that book very much like a product and I create a product vision for it. Um, so what are some examples of products that you're working on? And the second question for you is, what are some takeaways in terms of, you know, building these products systematically that you may be able to apply um, now that 
now that you're aware of this approach of iterating less and achieving more, what can you apply to building that product? Um, if you want to learn more, there's the free toolkit. Um, there's a blog as well that's uh, accessible from radicalproduct.com. Uh, and I'm working on my upcoming book, which comes out with Barrett Kohler in September next year. Um, I'll be sending out uh, free chapters as well on my mailing list. So you're welcome to join that. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org. Thank you.